I saw all the leaders in their bandanas over in um, Kid Zone getting ready to promote um, Masaba. What a great, great time. I would just echo Stephanie's announcement to get your kiddos signed up. There are so many testimonies of kids that have grown into adults serving God that started at Masaba. So you want to be a part of that. I just want to start with prayer if you would join me. God, thank you so much for your word and what um, you want to say to us today, God. This message is um, heavy on my heart, and I just pray, God, that you would speak through me and that you would show us, reveal to us, God, what you want us to see today and how we might apply it in our lives in a way that would glorify you. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. We're going to continue our study in Jonah, just this quick little um, series that Kevin started last week. We're going to um, cover chapter 3 today, and chapter 4 will be next week. But if you remember, last week Kevin called out the runners. I was not one of the ones that raised my hand. I'm not a runner as far as physically. I've done the running away from God thing, which is what we talked about last week. He said, you can't run from God, although Jonah tried, didn't he? He tried to run, and, and we can say that um, we can kind of judge Jonah for that, but we need to give him a little bit of a break because Nineveh was a bad, bad place. If a pastor had a choice to go anywhere, Nineveh would be the one place that they wouldn't go because Israel, things were going pretty well, and, and Jonah was a pretty well-known prophet, but everything was okay except for that problem in Assyria, specifically Nineveh. As Kevin said last week, they were known for their cruel military tactics. I mean, like, if there was a movie made about Nineveh, this would not come up on the Hallmark Channel. This would be like Braveheart kind of stuff. On the walls of the city, history tells us that there were paintings, gruesome paintings, of the torture and cruel behavior that they used there. I mean, Nineveh, I just want you to know, it was a bad place, and Jonah ran. And maybe like Jonah and me, you have done the same thing. You've run to your Joppa of sorts. You've fled to your comfort. You've hid and thinking, maybe God won't see me here. Or maybe he'll get somebody else to do it. Or maybe if I wait just long enough, it will pass. But as we learned last week, God got Jonah's attention, didn't he? In the form of sitting in the belly of a fish. And, you know, Jonah is known as the wrong way prophet. Rightfully so, right? Because he went the wrong way. Thank you. Well, I was looking this week, I just want to make sure you're awake. I found a great story, and it's a sports story, so I'm always kind of drawn to those, especially football stories. And this one was in the late 1920s. So I, I was looking at the Tidwells to see if they were, not that I think that they're that old, sorry, if you're streaming, I'm just saying, I don't know anybody that was here, I won't look at you, Judy, that was around like in the 1920s, but in 1929 at the Rose Bowl, yes, they had the Rose Bowl in 1929, um, Georgia Tech was playing the University of California, and the, the center, which if you don't know, that's the guy that snaps the ball, he was a, a guy named Roy Regals, and he played offense and defense. On defense, he was kind of like a, a middle linebacker. He was very good at his job. The coach said he was an incredibly smart player. They're in the Rose Bowl. It's late in the second quarter. It's a tight game. Nobody's really sco nobody has scored, and Georgia Tech fumbles the ball. Well, you know, any 
any dream of a, a linebacker is to pick up the ball and, you know, run however fast they run into the end zone. And he sees his end zone 30, mi- 30 miles, 30 yards away, and he takes a hit and kind of spins around and loses his bearings, and he starts to run 65 yards in the wrong direction. His own player takes him down just shy of the goal line, takes his own player down thinking, you bonehead, what is going on? Imagine the shame of this guy. Imagine how embarrassed he was that he went the wrong way. It resulted, they ended up punting the ball, and Georgia Tech blocked it and got a safety out of it. At least it wasn't six points. But everybody's question, the announcers, I watched the replay of it, which I would have shown you, but the pixels were pretty awful. Um, The announcers are going, oh, no, oh, no, what's happening? What's happening? And he's going the wrong way. But everybody's question is, what will coach What will the coach do? Nibs Price, what what is he going to do with Roy Regal? So they went to halftime. They they went in the locker room. Everybody sits on the benches except for Roy. He's in the corner, blanket over his head, and he is crying like a baby. The coach says nothing. It's silent. As a team player, I would be wondering, what's the plan? What are the wise words of the coach? Silence. It comes time for them to go back out on the field. And the coach says one thing. He gets up and he says, the same men that ended the first quarter will start the second. And everybody got up and left except for, except for Roy. He was still in his corner and, and the coach said, Roy, didn't you hear me? And I want to read you his quote. He said, Coach, I can't do this to save my life. I've ruined you. I've ruined the University of California. I've ruined myself. I couldn't face that crowd in the stadium to save my life. And they say that girls are dramatic. (laughs) Coach Price reached out, and he said something that I think is profound. He said, Roy, get up and go on back. The game's only half over. And I think... That's such a great metaphor for Jonah because we're about to look at God's halftime speech to Jonah of sorts. He tells Jonah what to do after he's ran and he's come back and been vomited out on the land. This is where we pick up today's story. So if you've got your Bible or your church app, um, turn to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. And we're going to pick it up there. This is right after he is on dry land. And this is what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I will tell you. So Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's plan. The word came to Jonah a second time. In all the book of Jonah, this verse is one that you want to stand on. The word of God came to Jonah a second time. He put Jonah back in the game. He didn't sit him on the bench. He didn't say, you're done. He didn't say, go back to Joppa and enjoy your Java. He said, I want you to go back. He gave him a second chance. Let that soak in for just a minute. He could have let him dry up on the land. He could have left him in the fish. This is good news for all of us because this is a picture of the gospel, of what Jesus did for us on the cross. He gave us a second chance. He gave Jonah simple instructions, but the assignment was anything but simple. He said, go 
and preach the message I will give you. That took courage. It took faith. I would have wanted to have an outline of some sort. Just go and preach the message that I will give you. And it says that Jonah got up and he went to Nineveh. He went to the wicked city. He went to the place of sin. He went to the place of torture. He went where he didn't want to go. There are a few things that I think we can take away from this. And I made it really simple because I like pontificating. And make it, I have three Ps for you today. But it's not a simple message. This message is hard in application. It's so hard to play out. But there's three things that I want us to remember. And that's when we get a second chance. It comes with a purpose. It comes with a price. And it can come with a prize. And I want to just unpack that with you today. And I want to start with this mission and purpose that a second chance. Jonah didn't get a second chance just to get a second chance. He got a second chance that had a purpose and a mission. And so do you and I. We serve a God of second chances. Just like Coach Price, Roy needed to get back in the game. And and instead of going and preaching a message, he just said, go hit some guys. Like, snap the ball well and play football. And that's what God said to Jonah, go preach the message. Go do what I told you to do. The Bible is full of second chances, isn't it? Think of Moses. He murdered someone, and God used him to lead his people out of exile. It's amazing to me. Think of the woman at the well. There could not have been a more undeserving person of a second chance. Yet God, Jesus meets her where she is and gives it to her. And and can we even say Peter? I mean, he denies Christ three times, not to mention all the boneheaded other things that he did. And God, he uses him to preach the most famous sermon of all on Pentecost and build the church on Peter. I mean, that's some kind of fifth, sixth, one hundredth chance. Romans 5, 8 says, but God proves his own love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's the ultimate second chance that he gives you and I for our sins. So God isn't just waiting for us to mess up. He's not waiting to kick us out or to send us back to Jabba. He is eager for us to make that choice. He's eager for us to to bring us back to him. Now, he, he loves to give us those second chances. And there's this, there's this sport called golf that all I know about is it's great nap TV. But in golf, I do know this. There's a thing called a mulligan. You know what this is, right? It's, it's a do-over in golf. I've, I read about it just for fun, and it seems like real good golfers don't use this, so you can kind of line up, you golfers, where, where you align on that. But you basically get to start over and, and not cost a stroke, right? Something like that anyway. You get a second chance. Well, Jonah and Roy and you and I, we get a mulligan. We get a second chance. And when God gives it to us, obedience should be our response. Because we have a mission and a purpose, so we should obey immediately. We don't always do this. Kevin talked about this last week, that this is where we get tripped up sometimes, is that lack of obedience. In Jonah 3, 4, this is what the message was. Jonah set out on the first day on his walk in the city and proclaimed, so this is his sermon, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Sermon over. (laughs) Five words in the Hebrew. Now, 
who wants to vote for five-word messages from now on? We could just send a memo. Kevin, just kidding. Five words was his message. Go to Nineveh. In 40 days, they're going to be demolished. There wasn't a lot of inspiration. There wasn't a cool football, you know, story at the beginning. He cut straight to the point. God cut straight to the point. If we were trying to reach Nineveh, I'm thinking if you put a bunch of pastors around a table and said, we want to reach the city of Nineveh, this is what would happen. There would be like a year-long strategy meeting. Um, we would talk about renting a big, um, a big casino, maybe a state casino. Sorry, Coliseum is what I was trying to say. A big stadium. Uh, and, and, and we would bring in the most famous preachers, and we would for sure have Chris Tomlin lead worship. I mean, this is how we would approach getting Nineveh to repent and come to Christ. But this is not what happened in 40 days. Nineveh is going to be demolished. There's, there's just no sexy in that sermon, I'm telling you. Jonah's second chance, though, came with this purpose. And I wonder this morning, when has God given you a second chance lately? Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's in another relationship. Maybe it's a second chance in a mess up at work. Maybe it's in a sin that you've been struggling with and you keep struggling with and you get a second chance. Well, it has a witness. It has a purpose. No matter how small it is, God has a purpose. And it may not be to preach a message, but that restored relationship is a witness to those around you. That marriage that has stayed together is a testimony to those that don't even know God. That sin that you've been able to, to keep from testifies to the power of the Holy Spirit. There is purpose in our second chances. And we need, like Roy, to steward those second chances well. God always has a purpose in those second chances. And he's always looking for repentant and willing hearts. And let's keep reading in Jonah. Start with verse 5. The men of Nineveh believed in God. Okay, this is right after he spoke his message. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest to the least. When the word reached the king Nineveh, of Nineveh, he got up from the throne, took off his robe, put on a sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh by order of the king and his nobles, no man or beast, herd or flock, this is the animals too, okay, can taste anything at all. They must eat not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both man and beast must be covered in sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from their evil ways and from their violence he is doing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. Now remember, Jonah repented in the fish. Um, in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I vowed. Salvation is in the Lord. He confessed. He repented. So Jonah had his repentant moment. And he may not have felt like going to Nineveh, but he did. He went beyond his feeling of fear, his feeling of angst. He went beyond in obedience, and I think our feelings trip us up too much. We miss out on the, the repentant part because we don't want to pay the cost. So second chances, they come with the price 
of repentance and obedience. Second chances are great, but they come with a cost. In Nineveh, they believed God. After that five-word message, they believed God and they responded to Jonah and they repented. Now, we're not, we don't do a lot of this in our culture. We don't repent. Um, we, we, we certainly don't wear sackcloth for 40 days. Do you know what sackcloth is? It's basically like wearing a burlap sack. It's goat hair. It's itchy. It's so uncomfortable. They didn't eat or drink for 40 days. Even the animals fasted. Like the king was covering all the bases, was he not? He's like, we are going to repent. They humbled themselves and they made themselves uncomfortable. Joel 2, 13, the prophet says this, Tear your hearts, not your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. Remember that relent word. We're going to come back to that. I believe this is why there is a brilliant absence of repentance in our culture. Is because it's uncomfortable. It's because it's painful. It's because it's, it, it requires humility and sacrifice. And our culture tells us that's not the way we, that we have the right to be comfortable, to do what feels right. And rest assured that we are no better than Nineveh. Did you see that um, Jonah's message didn't even need to tell them what they were doing wrong? There was no need. No one needed him to point out what was wrong. It wasn't like they were lacking the knowledge of who God was or that what they were doing didn't align. But what they were lacking was repentance. What they were lacking was acknowledging from. They, were, they had the information, but they lacked the motivation to follow God. And I have the distinct impression that if our nation received this kind of word of impending judgment, that we would have no difficulty knowing what God was asking us to repent of, would we? I mean, when you think about the broad strokes of sin, we could name a lot, but I think about we're the selfie generation. We are self-absorbed. We're apathetic. We're indifferent. There's no absolute truth. I mean, the list goes on and on. By the time the word reached the king, the city's repentance had already started. That's fascinating to me. It wasn't a top-down decree. By the time the king ordered the decree, everybody was already fasting. This is a movement of God. This is a movement of repentance. And the king did it himself personally. Then he makes this proclamation, this wide proclamation that men and animals and everybody, you're not just going to fast, but we're going to wear sackcloth. We are going to put ourselves in a position of lowliness. We're going to take away comfort. We're going to take God off of his throne and made himself low. Jonah 3 says, each, this, the king says, each must turn from his evil ways and from the violence he is doing. I love this word. In the Hebrew, the word turn there is from the word teshuva or teshuv. And it has so much more meaning in the original language because we think of repent, we know that it means to turn around, right, and go the other direction. That's what it means teshuv, is that you're going this direction 
but you change, you do a 180 of sorts and turn around. To use a military term, you do an about face. But to shuv in the Hebrew, the, the picture that I read paints that you're walking and this is your house, this is your home. This is the direction of your home. But when you shuv, you literally burn the house down. You destroy it and you turn never to go back to it again. Walking to your home. That's what it means to shuv. And that's what the king is asking them to do. That we're going to burn it down. We're going we're gonna to stop everything that we're doing. And we're going to turn the other way. Repentance puts actions to convictions. They believed God and they responded to it. He put aside, they put aside everything that was comfortable. True repentance, though, is revealed not just by that initial turn. I would say true repentance is revealed a little bit further down the road. Is it not? That's when we really know if the house is burnt or if we're turning for our comfort just a little bit. True repentance means it is gone in this step, the 10th step, the 11th step. I'm still repenting. It's a lifelong repentance. We could do a whole sermon on just how do you repent. Point in case, yesterday, as I was doing my final edits on this message, which is the most important edits because it's what for you, it goes from a two-hour message to 35 minutes. So it's important stuff. Spent all afternoon, and I saved, anyway... I lost it, couldn't find it. Um, and I'm, I'm fairly savvy tech. I did everything that I knew. And uh, I not only lost the document, I lost it. <laughs> I, I said words that, you know, are not becoming to someone up here. Uh, and I just lost my temper. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm going to have to start all over. I mean, I just lost it. And I, and I just kind of laughed because I thought, well, I need to repent <laughs> because I, of course, God had it under control. And so as I, I'm laughing at my next few points, because I kind of used this last night because this is kind of a little bit of repentance 101, just some steps. Uh, and I wrote these down and I obviously need them still. So maybe you do. The first thing you need to do is to stop and turn around. Okay, when you are repenting, that sounds silly, but you need to stop going to that house and you need to shuv. You need to turn around. Psalm 119.59 in the New Living Version says this, I pondered the direction of my life and I turned to follow your laws. Turn. The next thing you do is you need to start walking in the other direction. You can't get frozen because it's too easy to go that way. Is it not? Too easy to go back. So you need to start walking in the other direction. And the next thing you need to do is you need to block temptation, guard your heart, however you want to word that. Because let me tell you, the enemy, he wants, this is where he loves it. He wants to attack you, wants to discourage you. And if you don't have safeguards, those of you who struggle with pornography or flirting with women or men, if you don't have safeguards, it's not going to happen. If you don't block those things on your phone or if you don't tell your friends, hold me accountable for this relationship. Ezekiel 18.30 says this, Repent and turn from all your transgressions so they will not be a stumbling block that causes your punishment. 
Throw off all the transgressions you've committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. It's kind of like the writer of Hebrews that talks about throw off everything that hinders or entangles you. Block it because it's going to keep you. It's going to take you back to the burning house. Next, you need to just listen and take one step at a time. The writer of Isaiah says that God is going to stand behind us and he's going to talk to us and command us and say, this is the way. Walk in it. And lastly, you need to do it in community. I did that last night. I sent a bunch of prayer texts and said, I've lost my mind. Please pray for me because I, I'm, I'm losing it. And, and I really believe that that helped me find it. Find my document and save you from a two-hour message. But you need to do it in community. The writer of Hebrews also tells us this in, in chapter 10. And let us consider how we can spur one another on to good deeds. What that, some, you know, a spur is a sharp item, just so you know this. We always think of that as kumbaya. You know, we're just going to walk together hand in hand. But sometimes walking with each other is giving a nudge or bonking them on the head. Not, not, don't tell them I gave you permission to do that. We need to do it in community. Our mission is to keep the mindset of shoving every day. If you, don't, if you forget everything else, I said, I hope that you remember that. Shoving is every single day. Don't go back to the burning house. So God's second chances, they come with a purpose. They come with a price. But they also come with perspective and, and, and a prize. And let's, let's continue reading. Chapter, verse 10, the final one of chapter 3. Then God saw their actions. Okay, he saw the sackcloth, the ash. They sat in ashes, by the way. That is, they sat in ashes, sackcloth, fasting, hungry, sunken in faces. God saw this. They saw, he saw that they had turned, that they had shooved from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster he had threatened to do them, and he did not do it. He relented. The, the Assyrians qualified for God's sovereign judgment more than anybody, would you not think? Didn't they qualify more for judgment than grace? If you stacked it up in a court of law, you would say, absolutely guilty. But it says that the Lord relented. So God relented. Remember, we read that word back in Joel for the prophet Joel. He relented. In Hebrew, that's nahim. And it means to have compassion, to comfort. He, he relented. And I believe because God is so loving, he wanted it to be. It's like he was waiting and eager for them to confess and relent. But get this. God didn't change his mind. Okay? The fasting and the praying, it didn't change God's mind. That was in the plan all along. And I know that's kind of a hard concept to, to get your head around, but just know that God already knew it was going to happen. But didn't it please his heart that they turned toward him and away from their evil ways? The Ninevites' cry for mercy could have come back void, but it didn't. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. When we get a second chance, it changes our perspective, does it not? Talk to somebody who's just been acquitted of a crime. You thought they were about to do 10 years and they got grace. 
changes the perspective. Everything is new and fresh. And for the Ninevites, for this moment in this passage, it changed their perspective. And when we get a second chance, if it doesn't change the way we look at things, shame on us. Maybe we see the grace of God differently. Maybe we see the consequence that we would have had of our sin differently. But in this, there's this reconciliation in in this passage of God's judgment and his mercy. It's kind of an underscore of chapter 3, is it not? Because there's justice that they deserved what was coming to them. But then there's, there's God's mercy, which is the story of the gospel, by the way. But in our culture, we have a hard time reconciling judgment and grace. And you and I might think Nineveh deserved everything they had coming. But we don't have the divine perspective. And I would say, in general, our culture has a, like a dualistic view of justice. Because sometimes we want it, but sometimes we don't. And often it depends on where we are in that picture as to how we see justice. We tend to think that love and justice also, we think they're opposites. I'm telling you, our culture tells us this. They say you, have to, you can't judge and love. And I'm here, to, that is not God's message. It is not God's message. The opposite of judgment is not love. The opposite of judgment is apathy. I want you to think of it this way. If you walked up on a playground and you saw a kid bullying another kid, hitting him up, verbally abusing him, and you walked up on that scene, and you walked by, would that be love? If you didn't put any sort of judgment, any sort of right or wrong, any sort of assessment on that situation, would that be loving? Would that be teaching the kid that's throwing the punches what's right and wrong? Would it be teaching him what love is? Would it not miss an opportunity to see that maybe that kid needs help? Maybe that kid is hurting. I'm telling you, the opposite of love is not judgment. The purpose of God's judgment is not revenge. It never has been. It's all about correction. It's all about discipline. It's all about growth. God's justice is an expression of his love in, in his character. No matter what anybody tells you, that is what it is. If there isn't a God or judgment, there's really no hope for the world because there's no right and wrong. In that scenario, there's nothing we can do. But there is. I found it so interesting. There was a study done about this whole justice thing. I kind of got off on a little tangent, but I'm going to let you go with me. Because it's important that we understand how we work when we look at justice. The study concluded that we cut ourselves more slack than we give others. Is that astounding to you? No. Just so you know, this is, I want to know it's legit. This came out of University of Toronto and Madison University, and this is what they said. When considering the irrational choices of a stranger, for instance, we're forced to rely on how they behave, we see their biases from the outside, which allows us to glimpse their errors. However, when assessing our own bad choices, we tend to engage in an elaborate introspection. We study our motivations and search for relevant reasons. We lament our mistakes to therapists and ruminate on the beliefs that led us astray. 
We have a different perspective. Think about it if you're in the car. Maybe you're coming out of Sunrise Village like I do on my frequent trips to Target. <laughs> and I'm coming across, and you know, Meridian is a mess, especially if it's 5 o'clock. The light is not very long um, if you're going across. And I get frustrated with the people that pull in with the yellow light, you know, and they, they, they're trying to make it, but then they're stuck in the intersection. And you're trying to either turn left or go across, and you can't, can you? No, you're just stuck for another light. And I'm thinking, where did you learn how to drive? How inconsiderate are you? Goodness gracious. But then sometimes I'm on Meridian trying to get somewhere. And maybe I slide up there trying to make it. Because I know how long it takes. Because we all do. If you miss the light on Meridian. And my perspective then is, hey, I've got somewhere very important to be. And people, I don't always drive. Like, I mean, I, it's a total different perspective. That's how we see justice, guys. That's how we see it. It's tainted. We are not. We do not have divine perspective. God's sense of justice, it doesn't waver like ours. Praise God for that. So our perspective, it can be enlightened by grace. And Nineveh's prize, it was deliverance. They got to experience the deliverance from a second chance. They benefited from God's patience and his graciousness. I think about Paul on his road to Damascus. He was on a road to Damascus to imprison Christians. And he has this encounter this hostile enemy of Christians has this encounter with God that changes not only his life, guys, it changed ours. God used, I mean, talk about a second chance. Changed the trajectory of history. The truth, that truth, that, that, that revival, that unexpected revival, it brings hope to us, doesn't it? Brings hopes to the parents whose child is running away from God. It brings hope to myself and many of you that have been praying for family members to come to Christ for so long. It brings hope for those who are, are, are struggling with addictive behavior. It brings hope that God is the God of second chances. Now, I wish that Jonah ended in chapter 3. Some children's books do, by the way, just telling you. You'll have to come back next week for to just kind of see how sin is a constant struggle. But remember that God's second chances, they come, they come with a price and a purpose and a prize. And Roy, when he went back in the game, those Georgia Tech men said they'd never seen a guy play football like that. They never saw anybody hit so hard as the second half. They ended up losing the game, and the margin of that safety was proportionate to their loss. But he went on to be an All-American the next year, and he was inducted into the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame. He stewarded his second chance well. He was given a second chance, just like you and me. And I pray that we can do the same thing. And I want you to reflect. And the band's going to go ahead and come up. And I want you to reflect on a few things. Because again, if, you, if we don't take something away from this, it's for naught. So this is what I want you to reflect on, your homework, whatever you want to call it. I want you to think about, is there something you need to repent of? Where do you need to shove? And maybe it's big. 
Maybe it's something that you really know. Maybe it's something small, seemingly small. Where, what do you need to repent of? The second thing is, what second chance might you need to steward? When has God given you a... Maybe you're sitting here in a second chance this morning with the fight you had with your spouse on the way to church. What second chance? We all have a second chance to steward with our salvation, do we not? But what second chance do you need to steward? And lastly, what do you need to thank God for? Because we've talked about his graciousness in light of his justice. And what do you just need to be reminded of how good God is? Would you pray with me? God, I thank you for your word and that it comes to life when we open our hearts. And Father, as we worship and put words, uh, as these words are on our lips, God, I pray that they would be from our heart. God, that you are good and that we are not alone. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.